1 Peter 5, verse 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, that's how we want to receive these words this morning. We want to receive them in Christ. Because it is in Christ that these words that were written so long ago are words for us. They are words for today. They are words uh, for this week. A message that comes from you uh, through your servant Peter. May it be for us this morning a message of peace. A message that speaks of your true grace. A message that strengthens us. That teaches us to stand firm. May it be a message that comforts those who are disturbed. And may be a message that disturbs those who are too comfortable. We stand under this book, in front of this book, needy, desperate for your help, we ask that you keep the promise that your spirit would be present and active. We ask that he would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, and that today we would receive and be changed by these life-giving words. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I like to think of this passage as Peter's locker room speech to us. Uh, like, uh, like a coach who is about to lead his team out onto the field, uh, Peter reminds us of the game plan. He, he reminds us of the game plan as we step out on the field and the, the, the game plan of, of living life belonging to God in a world that has rejected God. And every good locker room speech not only informs, but it inspires. And so we find here words that are a call to arms. They are motivation for the battle. Some of you might be fans of the show Friday Night Lights. 
the great show about Texas high school football. And if you're a fan of that show, maybe you remember how Coach Taylor ends every locker room speech. He's standing before his team. They're about to run out on the field. And he says, clear eyes, full hearts. And then everyone says together, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Well, I'm going to steal that this morning. That's my outline. Okay, because I think that is a great summary of Peter's speech to us. And so we're going to consider his message here at the end of this letter in three parts. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. First of all, clear eyes. Peter, throughout this letter, has helped us to see our situation. And he has described it as a situation of exile. That we are not quite at home where we are. And he reinforces that description in this text in verse 13. As he sends greetings to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. She who is in Rome. That's the church in Rome, and he links the church's situation to the Old Testament story of exile. The Babylonian Empire coming and destroying the homeland of God's people and scattering them throughout the world. The church, whatever time it is, wherever place it is, is always in some sense in exile. And although we don't live under the Babylonian Empire, we don't live under the Roman Empire, we do live under pressure. We live under a pressure on our faith, on our identity, on our lifestyle as God's people. There is always, for Christ's people, a push away from allegiance to Christ towards accommodation to some other standard of normal defined by human culture apart from God. So far, so repetitive. We've heard this before. This has been a consistent message in this letter. But here at the end, Peter adds another dimension. He adds another dimension and he says that pressure that you feel on your faith, on your identity, goes beyond culture. It is more than cultural. It is spiritual. Your enemy, in the end, isn't human culture. Verse 8, your enemy is the spiritual power that has stood behind human rebellion from the beginning. You have an adversary, the devil, who's like a hungry lion. Now that's weird, right? We, we as American Presbyterians are a little skittish of talking about the devil, right? We're a little skittish of, of talking about demons and demonic power. That freaks us out a little bit. But let me, let me make three comments about this topic. Okay, let me, let me make three comments. First, Jesus talks about Satan more than anyone else in the Bible. So... If we are going to say that Jesus speaks the truth, if Jesus has true insight into reality, then we have to be consistent and say that Jesus speaks truthfully about this reality. 
about the reality of a spiritual opposition to God and to God's people. Second comment. Having said that, the Bible, beyond just acknowledging the existence of Satan, doesn't give us many details. We don't have much information. What the Bible does seem to say is that Satan works to oppose God and his people through the human will. He works through distorted desires. In other words, the devil doesn't make people do what they don't want to do. He works through our wants that are divorced from God's wants. He works through our will that has been marred by sin. So it turns out the devil is a fiddle player. Charlie Daniels had it right all along. (laughs) But the strings he plays, the strings he plays are human sin. It's, It's our desires that have been broken by sin. Third comment. Our response to all of this shouldn't be terror. It shouldn't be fear. Do you notice in this text how Peter is calling us out of fear? So the response to the reality of spiritual opposition isn't anxiety, it's awareness. Verse 8 again. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Have clear The place where my family and I lived for a couple of years in Africa had the three most dangerous poisonous snakes in the world. Black mambas, green mambas, spitting cobras. Not the most fun fact for a parent of young children running around and playing in tall grass. And at first, this completely undid me. I was scared to death. There was a snake around every corner. But... But after a while, that that began to settle. And and it settled into a kind of normal vigilance. So when my kids were outside playing, I wasn't in a panic the whole time. I was just aware. I had eyes to see. I was vigilant for a potential danger that was there, but not overcome with fear about it. This is what Peter wants for us. He wants a vigilance. He wants us to recognize, to show up in our life knowing that we have an enemy. There is an opposing team. We have an enemy who wants to poison our faith. We have an enemy who wants to disturb our trust that through Jesus we belong to a God who is good and wise. We have an enemy who wants to disturb that trust and then distract it, turn it elsewhere. Peter wants awareness. He wants us to be vigilant. He wants us to have clear eyes. But awareness isn't enough. Awareness isn't enough. He goes on in verse 9 to say you must resist. And in order to resist, we need a strategy. If we're going to resist this enemy, we need a strategy. And so Peter calls us not only to clear eyes, but to full heart calls us to full hearts. The strategy that Peter 
talks about in this text isn't to spend a lot, a lot of time talking about Satan. He says, be aware, and then let's talk about God. There's, there's a lot of theology in this text. In just a few words, just a few verses, Peter brings us to the expansive breadth of the character of our God. Who on the one side has a mighty hand. Phrase in verse 6 that's used throughout the Bible, but it has its origins, it has has its roots in the Exodus story. When God undoes the order of creation, splits the sea, and defeats the most powerful army in the world in order to rescue his people. He is a God who has a mighty But on the other side, verse 7, he is not only extraordinarily powerful, but he is deeply compassionate. He cares for you. He not only has extraordinary power, he has deep compassion for you in your fear in your suffering. And we need to embrace this broad, big vision of who God is. We need to realize that that the Bible describes, describes Him as a fierce warrior who melts mountains, but also as one who is like a nursing mother, tender, with her child. We want to reduce to one side or the other, but God is both. And He is everything good in between. And that is not abstract theology at a distance. Peter brings that close, and he makes it deeply personal. So he doesn't say, think about God. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He doesn't say, reflect on these deep, abstract thoughts. He says, cast your anxieties. Throw your fears onto the deep compassion, the tender care that God has for you. Verse 12, he says, I have written to you about the true grace of God. The grace that's revealed in Jesus who takes the infinite might and the infinite mercy of God and surrounds us with them both. That is the true grace of God. Don't just read books about it. That's a comment to myself. Don't just read books about it. Stand on it. Build your life. Make that your foundation, your surety when you get out of bed in the morning. So what's the strategy for us to resist our enemy? Verse 9. Resist. Skilled in fighting? No. Firm in We resist our enemy 
as we, along with the community of God's people throughout time and around the world, entrust ourselves to grace. Hearts that are full of who God is for us because of Jesus. That He is a mighty warrior and a tender nursing mother for us because of Jesus. So yes, we we are exiles. We are strangers who have a powerful enemy. But we are more than that. We are so much more than that. Maybe you remember all the way back to the beginning of this letter how Peter describes us as exiles, but then he gives us another label. It's a word that he repeats in verse 13 of this text. Yes, you're exiles, you're strangers, but way more important than that, you are chosen. Which means that you are precious. Which means that you are beloved by God. We resist with hearts that are full of grace. John Zoll is a, an Anglican pastor in South Carolina And he tells the story about receiving a gift card from a man in his congregation who was who's an owner of a very nice men's clothing store. And it was a very generous gift card. And so John's plan was to take that gift card to spend the amount at the store and then to spend just a little bit more to show his gratitude for the gift. And so that this man would know that he supports his business. And so John goes to the store and he picks out all his clothes. He brings them to the counter. The cashier rings up the purchase and says, here's your card back. You've spent half of it. And John was confused by this. And by, after looking at the receipt a little bit, figured out that he had only been charged half for the purchases he made. Which he was glad about, but also bothered him because he really wanted to show his gratitude for, his, for this gift. And so he goes home to his wife, and this bothered her too. And so they decide to go together back to the store to pick out enough to cover the amount of the card and spend just a little bit more to show their gratitude. And so they go and they pick out clothes and some shoes and they bring them to the counter. The cashier rings at the purchase. He hands his card back and he says, you don't owe anything. And John says, no, that's not right. No way, I know I spent more than that card. And the cashier says, no, you don't understand what kind of card this is. It's the kind of card where no matter how much you spend, your balance will always be zero. No matter what you throw at this gift, you will never exhaust it. The true grace of God that Peter has taught us about in this letter is a gift like that. It is a gift like that. Inexhaustible. No matter what you throw out, throw at it. An inexhaustible gift of favor for you because of Jesus. And we will resist our enemy when our hearts are full of a sense of that gift. When our lives are entrusted to that gift. When we are filled with the assurance that we are God's treasure. And nothing we can do will change that. That is when we are able to resist our enemy. 
Is your heart full this morning? Is your heart full of what God says about you? Of who He is for you? Through Jesus Christ. Clear eyes. Full hearts. But Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't merely give us a strategy. He leaves us with a certainty. You can't lose. You can't lose. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you. Verse 10, what does it mean to be chosen? It means not only that God is present with you now, it means that He has called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus. And He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, for the Christian, suffering, pain, pressure, and resistance are inevitable. They are inevitable for us. And they are real, and they will bring grief into our lives. But they are also temporary. They are real and painful, but they are also temporary. Only glory is permanent. Only glory is permanent. Only the beauty of God revealed in a renewed creation to which we belong through Jesus. Only His beauty will last. Only glory is permanent. And so, anchored in that future, we can show up on the field of our present. We can show up to this weak with eyes that are clear towards our enemy with hearts that are full of the grace of God and with an abiding confidence that we can't lose let's pray